Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 62, The Other Side. Well, we kicked off Hell Month a few days ago with a nearly three-and-a-half-hour-long universalism debate between Jason Pratt from the Evangelical Universalist and Turretin fan. Um, I enjoyed the debate. I hope you did as well, and I certainly have some thoughts, which I'll probably share in a future, uh, future episode uh, discussing the debate. In the meantime, we're going to continue Hell Month today with an interview that I recorded a couple of days ago with Larry Dixon, author of The Other Side of the Good News, and we're going to be talking about annihilationism and whether it or the traditional view of hell is the biblical view. Um, what I want to do, though, before we move into the interview is I want to let you know that I've created a YouTube channel, which you can find by going to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash The Apologetics. Uh, I created the YouTube channel at the recommendation of a, of a friend of mine um, and a listener. Uh, and I kicked off the channel by uploading the entire universalism debate after breaking it up into 24 bite-sized chunks. Uh, if for whatever reason you gravitate toward YouTube rather than downloading an MP3 and listening that way, um, that's available at the YouTube channel. And also just this morning I published uh, a video containing content not found in my podcast, um, not entirely anyway, which I've called Call on the Name. Um, in this short 10-minute video, well, short-ish, 10-minute <laughs> video, I talk about, uh, I play some clips from a recent debate that Michael Burgos, who has appeared on my show in the past, had with Anthony Buzzard on the topic of the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. Uh, in that debate, uh, as part of the question and answer period, I got to ask a question of Anthony Buzzard, and in this video, I uh, discuss his answer to the question. Uh, check it out. Let me know what you think. Um, also, let me know what you think about having this YouTube channel in general. You know, um, I wouldn't, I don't want to have short five to ten minute episodes of my podcast, but I wouldn't mind doing short five to ten minute videos, maybe even in response to other people's videos or as an alternative to doing blog posts, that kind of thing. I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's something to think about. And, um, and already, at least Jason Pratt thought that the uh, that the idea was good and has uh, linked to it at the Evangelical Universalist and encouraged people to check it out there. I think that others will like the uh, like the channel as well. Um, and who knows? Maybe maybe its only benefit will to be will be to uh, get me some additional listeners. <laughs> I don't know. Beyond that, there's really not much more I want to say except to remind you that next week is the third The Apologetics podcast debate, uh, again with Turret and Fan affirming uh, the debate proposi proposition, which will be denied this time by a listener and friend named Ronnie, um, the, the very listener and friend who suggested the YouTube channel, who will be arguing in favor of annihilationism. So this should be an interesting debate. I'm looking forward to it. Hope that you are as well. Uh, and with that, let's go ahead and play today's promo for Faith and Reason with Matt Slick. There is a God. You are not him. Welcome to Faith and Reason, the apologetics, Christian-based apologetics show, where we answer difficult questions about Christianity. We expose the errors of such things as atheism, Roman Catholicism, evolution, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Christian science, New Age, Islam, and various other religious and secular systems. Why? Because Jesus alone is the way to truth and life, and if you don't receive him as your Savior, you're lost and you're in trouble on the Day of Judgment. 
Matt Slick runs the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry at CARM.org. That's C-A-R-M.org. You can listen to CARM Radio's Faith and Reason Radio live with Matt Slick Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific Time on KSPD in the Boise, Idaho area on AM790, or you can subscribe to the podcast, and there are links to all of that in the show notes. Uh, So I think that you should check the resource out. He's a little obstreperous, as he himself is... uh, want uh, is quick to admit um but uh but much of his materials are are very sound and um i think that you'll appreciate his ministry so with that let's go ahead and move into today's interview with larry dixon I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Larry Dixon, professor of theology at Columbia International University Seminary and author of the book, The Other Side of the Good News, to discuss why he thinks the Bible presents us with the traditional doctrine of hell and not annihilationism. Thanks thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. Dixon. My pleasure, Chris. Now, I like to begin a lot of my interviews by asking my guests for their testimony, and if I read the introduction to your book correctly, your testimony is of particular relevance to our discussion today. Can you tell us, if you don't mind, what brought you to Christ? Yeah, I think a fear of hell brought me to Christ. I was part of a youth group as a teenager, and uh, the youth pastor one night, I guess, felt felt led by the Lord to really hammer away at the doctrine of hell. And uh, I barely got home and got on my knees beside my bed before I trusted Christ and realized I did not want to uh, go through, uh, face God without uh, without knowing Christ as my Savior. And so that's some of this is personal. This is, mm. this is how I came to know the Lord. It's not the only reason for a person to get saved, of course. But I think fear of God's judgment is a very valid motivation. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. But you're currently a professor at Columbia International University Seminary, whose website says you joined their faculty back in 97. What led you there, and, and what's its mission? Why might someone listening today want to consider Columbia for their seminary education? Uh, what led me there really was an opening in teaching systematic theology at the seminary. And uh, by the way, our full name is Columbia International University Seminary and School of Ministry. We have very large sweatshirts. So, <laughs> I bet. As you can well imagine. Um, and I mean, what led me there was a position to teach at what I think is a very fine evangelical institution whose heart is missions. Uh, the Great Commission uh, flows, you know, throughout our our uh, our veins, and uh, our mission is to impact the nations with the message of Christ. And so um, many of our students that come to us, both on the undergrad as well as the seminary or grad level, are what we call mission-quality students, that Mm. is, students that already have a heart for the world, many of whom wind up going overseas. I see. But, of course, your ministry isn't limited to your teaching at Columbia, uh, that big sweatshirt that you're talking about. I'm, I'm told that you also maintain a, a ministry at conferences, camps, retreats, seminars, averaging 40 to 50 speaking engagements annually. Tell us about those. Well, that information is a little bit outdated. I used to be on the circuit among the open brethren churches, and so I would preach a lot during the year. Um, I've, I've cut back on that and got myself more involved in our own home church. Uh, but I still do Bible conferences and uh, retreats. In fact, this past weekend, I just spoke at a family retreat in North Carolina. 
Um, and I love doing that kind of thing. Um, I, my passion, Chris, is making theology understandable and practical. And mm. I often tell people that theology is not boring. Theologians are boring. <laughs> and I'm a theologian, so uh, I have a great passion to make the doctrines of Scripture understandable. Sure. Yeah, I can really uh, relate to that. I, I have a similar passion, even if I'm not as uh, experienced yet as, as perhaps you are. Now, of course, you've written more than just the book we're going to be talking about today, uh, including your latest one addressing a related topic in light of Rob Bell's recent book, and that's a book I hope to discuss with you in a future episode. But what are some of the other books besides one we're going to be talking about today that you've written? Well, I wrote a uh, three-month devotional and doctrine called Doc Devos, D-O-C-D-E-V-O-S, uh, that uh, essentially is a kind of daily bread with teeth. And what I mean by that is people can study the first three areas of systematic theology devotionally, and each of the devotions connect with the previous one. So after three months, they get a good understanding of introductory matters, the doctrine of God, and the doctrine of Scripture. Um, I followed that up with a book uh, on heaven uh, called Heaven Thinking Now About Forever, and it was nice to write that little book because I'd only written the book on the other side of the good news, and I was glad because now I could die and having written a book on heaven as well as a book on hell. <laughs> um, and then I did two books, once a survey of Bible doctrine called, called Doc Talk. Um, and uh, what's, what's interesting about that it covers the ten areas of, of Christian theology. There are original cartoons in that book uh, by the, the Christian cartoonist Ron Wheeler. So I can now die in peace. I've written a theology book with cartoons. <laughs> nice. that, that was followed by a book called Doc Walk, which is trying to answer the question, how do we put into practice what it is we say we believe? And um, uh, that also has some cartoons from Ron and uh, uh, just trying to help people uh, respond to the challenges of Scripture to live out our faith. Um, the last book I wrote before this uh, short book on Rob Bell is a book entitled uh, When Temptation Strikes, hmm. and it's really a theology of sin and, uh, again, a, a very hopefully a very practical book written for the lay reader uh, on the double topics of temptation and sin. So that's what I've done so far. Yeah, it's, it's it's very interesting. I'll have to pick up some of those books. They sound interesting. Um, but but today we are going to be talking about the the book that we've mentioned a few times that you originally published in 1992 called The Other Side of the Good News, uh, a new version of which was published in 2003. In the introduction, and this goes back to our first question, you wrote that your testimony was part of your motivation for writing the book. You wrote people who come to Christ out of the fear of judgment and hell are looked at as a bit of as as a bit old fashioned and perhaps theologically uninformed. Tell us more about that and your reasons for writing the book. Well, as I said, I got saved as a teenager being afraid of God's judgment. And over the years as a theologian, I've become more and more aware of what I describe as an evangelical erosion in this mm. doctrine. Um, not to put too fine a pejorative term to it, but uh, that concerns me. And it concerns me that for that many evangelicals have kind of whittled the gospel down to peace and joy and happiness in Jesus, hmm. uh, to where we don't talk about the bad news of the good news, and we need to. Uh, so part of my motivation in writing that book was to say, hey, if the Bible is true, and if we understand especially the words of Jesus carefully, hell is a real place. Nobody should want to go there. And Christ has given us sufficient warning. But we also need to respond to those who seem to be... Um, somehow uh, fiddling with that doctrine and making that doctrine less horrific than it is um, 
and uh, and therefore uh, I kind of dove into this whole discussion years ago and still stay in it a little bit. Hmm. Well, you go on to describe how hell has become a very popular topic in the media, even if it's been somewhat eroded, as you put it, in the Christian churches. What are some examples that demonstrate this heightened interest in the media and simultaneous fading from Christian interest? And and, and do you think that this is continuing even today, 20 years since you originally wrote your book? Oh, absolutely. I think there is a there's less of an emphasis in our churches on eternal judgment, on God's holiness and wrath. I mean, when's the last time you heard a sermon on hell? <laughs> or when's the, when's the last time I preached a sermon on hell? I mean, uh, that was not connected to a capital campaign. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, our doctrinal statements sometimes shy away from any clear uh, declaration of the fate of the wicked. I think the recent attention given to Rob Bell's uh, book, Love Wins, illustrates the media's interest. I mean, Bell is taking on the doctrine of hell uh, directly and providing what he thinks is a... Uh, much more positive message. He describes the evangelical view as toxic and a hijacking of the Jesus message. Contemporary culture loves the bizarre and it loves the outrageous. And for many, the very notion of hell is just that, outrageous. So they, they love highlighting that. It's, it seems to me they especially love highlighting when a prominent evangelical changes his or her perspective on that doctrine. And, uh, and then they may uh, spend time highlighting that. But I think for most of us Christians... On a personal level, we don't like talking about hell. Uh, we shy away from it. We'd, as one preacher put it, when I talk about the gospel, I'm afraid of what people think about Jesus, and I'm also afraid of what they'll think about me, but mostly I'm afraid of what they'll think about me. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you think is the reason why hell is so on the decline in Christianity today? And, and, and do you think it's just hell that Christians are distancing themselves from, or are there, might, are there other areas in which we're sort of becoming soft? I, the, I, I believe that preachers have the responsibility to proclaim the whole counsel of God. That, that relates to theology professors, it relates to pastors, uh, it relates to those who are teaching Bible studies, and there are some hard doctrines in Scripture. God's mm. wrath is a hard doctrine. God's holiness is a hard doctrine. And I personally think that we need to get back to a day and age in which we would respect someone like a Jonathan Edwards centers in the hands of an angry God. Mm. Uh, and contrary to, uh, uh, to the criticism of Clark Pinnock that he understood Edwards to be a sadomasochist, I don't think he was at all. I think he wanted people to repent of their sins and come to Christ. And yet it seems that for many today they turn that sermon centers in the hands of an angry God into God in the hands of angry sinners. Hmm. That God is being challenged for allowing this world to continue on in its brokenness and that God has a lot of explaining to do uh, hmm. uh, in, in the end. So I think some of these more difficult doctrines really do uh, hang together. And so it's not just hell that Christians are distancing themselves from. It's also God's holiness. It's the issue of whether God owes salvation to any. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, it's the issue of the absolute importance of the gospel and getting the gospel out to those who've never heard. Sometimes theologians spend a lot of time spinning theories about those who've never heard, and those are worth thinking about. But the bottom line is we're commanded to go. Yeah. That's the answer. So. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I wonder if if some of this is reflected on what seems to be a lack of uh attention on apologetics in the churches as well. Um you know, if 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 as you say, we're downplaying the importance of um sharing the gospel with a world that needs it, uh it's no wonder that you don't hear many sermons in church talking about apologetics issues that are going to help people to share the gospel. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that's also buying into the kind of postmodern spirit that we want to share an experience. We want people to have an experience rather than believe what's true. Right. And uh, I, I could not agree with you more, Chris. Apologetics is a lost discipline in many ways uh, that we need to get back to. If if the gospel's true, you know, the heart cannot embrace what the mind rejects as false. Mm. And we need to be able to present the evidences for that. And I think for, for many people, especially when the Spirit of God is doing his work of conviction in their hearts, they recognize the fact that if God is holy, as the Bible declares, they're in a peck of trouble. Yeah. And I think we're missing the opportunity to somehow, you know, in a sense, tap into that. Not not everybody needs to follow a Ray Comfort kind of approach. <laughs> but I think he's onto something there. Sure. To help people see that we have terribly violated God's uh, God's laws. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now, for those who might prefer not to think or talk much about hell, in your book, you give three reasons why we must be discussing the topic. And the first is the fate of the wicked is already being discussed, debated, and supposedly debunked. Uh, can you explain that for us? Yeah, and there I'm talking about our kind of intramural discussion. I'm talking about some of the figures that I deal with in, in my book, Pennock and Stott, Michael Green and others. I would say the average Christian isn't discussing hell, isn't debating hell. It's just not a it's not a topic. Uh, that even comes up. My point was there that we need to get into that debate because when a, a extremely uh, gifted and powerful evangelical statesman like John Stott sides with annihilationism, and of course he passed away recently, um, that we got to take notice of that. I think mm. that's very important to recognize that you know he's a he was an extremely godly and uh, man used of the Lord. In many ways. So I think we need to jump into that discussion and listen to the best arguments he set forth and respond to them. It sounds kind of like, not to use a kind of trite analogy, but, um, you know, oftentimes you hear people say something like, if you don't vote, then you have no right to complain about who's elected. Well, in the same way, if we're not engaged in the debate about hell, then, um, then we're letting, uh, we're letting a, a, a battle be won that we're not helping to fight. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Exactly. And, and a quick illustration of that, Chris, uh, and, and I know we may talk about this in the future, but when Rob Bell's promo video came out for his book, Love Wins, and that promo video basically seemed to say that uh, traditional Christians are stupid for preaching hell and preaching judgment. Um, evangelicals quickly responded to that and to some advanced copies of his book, but then were absolutely castigated later because they'd not read the full manuscript because it hadn't been published. Hmm. I mean, to me, it, you know, it's almost like you're you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Christians wanted to get into that bait, d- debate. They felt it was important. And when they got into that bait, responded to a, a very highly charged promotional video, they got criticized because they, they didn't wait until the, the whole book came out. Hmm. Yeah. Which didn't change anything. When the no. book came out, it just gave, I think, more 
reasons for what was initially being said anyway in response. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, and uh, as you mentioned, I'd love to have you on in the future to talk about that book. Uh, but, but the second reason in this book that you give for uh, why it is that we must be talking about this is because there is, as the title of your book intimates, another side to the good news, one which people need to be warned about. And I really like the analogy of the flight attendant. Can you explain the second reason and maybe share with my listeners this analogy? Sure. I think that, uh, you know, sometimes we're very much like uh, a, a businessman that gets on an airplane. And when he gets on the airplane, he, uh, uh, you know, he sits down, he tries to get comfortable, but he uh, he recognizes there's going to be a flight attendant who comes and, uh, you know, kind of says something uh, to him and starts giving him instructions in case, uh, uh, you know, in case there's there's a problem. And, uh I'm trying to find it here, Chris. I'm sure. Do you have the page in front of you? I don't. I'm sorry. Okay. Because um, to me, it was one of the very few brilliant things that I've ever written. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I don't seem to find it right here. But basically, the idea is, you know, this is a different flight attendant who starts her safety speech. And she sees a businessman napping. And she shakes him. And she says, listen, Buster, you better listen to what I've got to say. Because, you know, we could uh, we could all die. And, uh, you know, what I've got to tell you is very important. Um, She'd probably lose her job, but at least she was indicating how serious her message was. I I think evangelicals are fearful of warning people about God's judgment. Mm. And yet that's part of the gospel. We're we're to tell people to flee from God's wrath. Now, I'm not suggesting that we buttonhole everybody we see and preach uh, hellfire and brimstone to them. Sure. But it's been my own experience that some people won't listen to a message that's just peace, love, and joy in Jesus. Yeah. They, they need to hear that we are, we're in desperate trouble before a holy God. And so that's kind of why I use that analogy. Yeah, that's good. You know, Jesus said that uh, I come to offer a peace that's different from the peace that uh, that men offer. Um, but what that says is that the world does offer a kind of peace. And so, if all we're doing, if all we're doing, is preaching about um, this superior peace that Jesus brings, that may not strike the same chord in the minds of those people who already experience a kind of peace. Uh, whereas, if we um, focus on the judgment that they're going to face, uh, that that might have an impact. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very true. Yeah. Well, now the third reason you give is very simple. Jesus talked about hell. <laughs> uh, tell us more about this third reason to take hell seriously. Well, the more research I did, Chris, I found that the primary source for the doctrine of hell is not the crusty apostle Paul or the fiery ap- apostle Peter. It's the good shepherd himself, mm. the Lord Jesus. And I'd often heard from preachers that he spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. I did a little bit of a quantitative study of that and found that to be, to be actually true. He speaks more about hell than he does about heaven, more about God's judgment than he does about that blessed place for those who are redeemed. And, uh, you know, from from that perspective, um, I just felt it important to focus upon the Lord Jesus himself. Hmm. Well, that's, that's a good place to focus on. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, now in your book, you devote a large chapter to each of three competing alternatives to the doctrine of hell, one of which we're going to focus on today. But the other two seem kind of similar to one another, and I wasn't sure I understood really the, 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 the fundamental difference. So maybe you can tell us about the view which you critique in the chapter you call, The Other Side, Will It Have Any Occupants? Why do you think it's not biblical? Well, that view, of course, is universalism. Universalism says uh, there may be a hell, but it will always be empty. Hmm. Uh, or if people go there, they go there only for a period of time until they finally believe the gospel. And so those who 
hold to universalism are called universalists. Uh, they would argue that all will be saved. Some will say with their consent. Others will say forced into heaven. Some will say that uh, some universalists say even Satan will be brought back into the family of God. And there's a lot of movement these days in theology between evangelicals and universalists. There's a whole group of uh, evangelical universalists, which mm-hmm. to me is a oxymoron like jumbo, jumbo shrimp or efficient government. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I could talk about that some, but because I've done probably more work on universalism in the last few years than I have on annihilationism. But, um, Again, not to not to beat a dead horse, but Rob Bell is what I would call an inconsistent universalist, uh, saying that God will use as long as he needs to persuade people, even after death. Um, and just one more point about universalism. Sure. I believe the Bible posits two, not one, destiny for human beings. That is, there will be uh, an eternal bifurcation or separation between the wicked and the righteous. The righteous are not righteous because of their own deeds, but because of being covered by the finished work of Christ, the wicked are those who die without receiving Christ. And uh, universalism posits only one destiny for all, which is salvation. And I, I would add, in a, in a sense, I think annihilationism is almost a variation of universalism in that you still wind up at the end of time with only one category of human beings, hmm. the redeemed, if that makes sense to you. Hey. So that's... You know, that universalism is really the, the first one that I take on. I see. But, but what I don't understand is how is that different from the chapter called The Other Side? Will it have any redeemable documents? Since, you know, many universalists, as far as I understand anyway, would base their universalism on the opportunity for everybody to be redeemed out of hell. Explain for us this, how it is that this other view, will it have any redeemable occupants, uh, occupants? Tell us about how that's different from the first one and why you don't think hell's occupants will be able to be redeemed. Well, I, I think there is a, a definite connection. I mean, universalism uh, often argues that people will get opportunities after death to believe. And so the view I'm critiquing in that chapter is called post-mortem conversion. In other words, people will get chances after death to believe the gospel. So it is, you're right, it is a, it is a variation in a sense of universalism, um, although some post-mortem conversionists would say people can still refuse, Mm. Uh, although universalists will typically say they may, but God will never, ever give up on them and keep turning the screws tighter and tighter. The the idea of opportunities after death for belief, uh, I believe, is thoroughly refuted by Scripture, that death ends opportunities for conversion, and that efforts to connect post-mortem opportunities to say Jesus' descent into hell uh, are very very thin. Mm. Very little, very little uh, scriptural evidence uh, that Jesus offered anyone a chance after death. And um, I've I've done a study of the biblical doctrine of death. You can see I get invited to a lot of parties. By <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a, I've done a fair amount of study on the biblical doctrine of death, and uh, it just seems very clear to me that that death is uh, brings an end to opportunities for conversion. And so that's kind of what I dealt with in that chapter. I see. Well, we're going to be focusing shortly on a view of hell you discuss in another chapter called The Other Side, Will It Have Any Permanent Inhabitants? But to set the stage, I first want to look at why it is that you think that the traditional view of hell, one of eternal conscious suffering, is the biblical one. In a chapter toward the end of your book called The Other Side According to Jesus, one of the passages you point to as evidence in favor of the traditional view of hell is Matthew 25, 31 to 46, where Jesus talks about the future separation of the sheep from the goats. What does Jesus say in that passage that lends itself to 
this traditional view of hell? Well, what I find in that text is Jesus uh, divides, it seems to me, all of humanity into two and only two categories. Uh, the sheep are those who knew the Lord and showed it by the way they uh, cared for the the poor and the oppressed and where they uh, visited prisoners and they clothed the naked and so on. And Jesus says, to the degree that you've done this to the least of these, uh, you've done it unto me and enter into your rest. Uh, the goats are those who did not show any faith in in uh, in God by uh, their their social works, their social concerns. And to that second group, he says, depart from me uh, into the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Hmm. And of course, one of the, the, the key texts, the key passages in Matthew 25 is verse 46, that the sheep will go away into eternal life but the goats into eternal punishment. And I'm sure we'll get back to that one later. Sure. But it just seems to me there's an eternality to both of those destinies that needs to be uh, kept in mind. So I, I, I see that as a very pivotal text. And uh, some of my some of my fellow traditionalists, uh, um, uh, such as Alan Gomes and Robert Peterson, see the same same kind of thing um, that verse 46 is a is a very key text. Sure. I, I think even many annihilationists would acknowledge that that's a, one of the turning points, or, or not turning points, but one of the focuses of the debate. Absolutely. Yep. Well, you go on in this chapter to spend a lot of time with a parable, if it is a parable, of Lazarus and the rich man. But what conclusions do you draw from this story concerning hell? Um, Luke 16, uh, verses 19 through 31 is that story. And uh, I think it probably is a parable, just in the in the way in which Luke, Luke introduces some of the other parables Um and there are some very conservative Christians who think that's, uh, uh, that it's not a parable, that it's a real story because the name Lazarus is used. My bottom line would be, I don't think Jesus is going to deceive us or mislead us, even in the context of a story. And he's obviously telling the story, as Luke 16 indicates, uh, to warn the Pharisees who were lovers of money. Mm. And part of the point of the rich man and Lazarus is that, uh, uh, one's relationship to the Lord is, is shown by how one uses or does not use one's financial resources. Um, and what I find very interesting in that story is, and I freely admit, it, it seems to be describing what's called the intermediate state, that time period between one's death and one's bodily resurrection. I think the Bible teaches a conscious existence of both the righteous and the wicked after death. Uh, that death indicates separation between one's solar spirit and body. Mm. Um, and so uh, for both uh, the rich man, traditionally called Dives, uh, Latin for rich man, and Lazarus, there's a, there's a real continuing existence after death. Uh, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, which I see as a metaphor for heaven. Uh, Dives is in a place of torment. We're told that five times in that text. And there's a lot of other things that go on in that passage. But my point would be, though it's a description of the intermediate state, I don't see anything in Scripture that says that state will end, but rather that state becomes even worse because even the wicked will receive resurrection bodies and be cast out of temporary hell into the eternal lake of fire. So for that reason, I think it's an important text to consider. Okay.
that's another one that I think we'll come back to a little bit later. Uh, you go on to agree with Trench that we ought not to rest too heavily upon parable. And so you go on to cite some other passages which you think support the conclusions that you draw from this parable of Lazarus and Dives. You point to two, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, Revelation 14, 10 to 11, and 20, uh, Revelation 20, 10 to 15. What do these passages teach about hell with respect to what we see in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? Well, the Second Thessalonians 1, 8, 9 reads as follows. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Um, and so I would say that text is teaching there will be an eternal destruction or an eternal punishment for the wicked. That involves being shut out from the presence of the Lord, uh, which is quite an interesting concept when we think about God being omnipresent. Mm. Um, and, and I think Psalm 139 indicates that God is actually in hell, but it's not in terms of fellowship. He's there as judge. Yeah. And um, so uh, I think the Second Thessalonians 1 um, indicates that there will be a, a, a true punishment uh, described here as everlasting destruction, which I'm sure we'll get back to later in terms of what that term uh, actually signifies. But um, both the Romans 14 and the Romans, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 14 and Revelation 20, it seemed to me, give us a little bit of detail as to what that future judgment entails. So uh, Revelation 14, 10, 11 says this, uh, uh, that the one who worships the beast will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured at full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. And so uh, it, it seems rather apparent to me that that is unending uh, punishment for the wicked. Smoke of their torment rises forever and ever if the images of, of fire consuming something it's never consumed the smoke continues to rise forever and ever um described as their torment and 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 so on revelation 20 verses 10 through 15 uh talks about the fate of the devil in my book i ask who cares about the devil and uh is he a is he a real personal being and it seems to me scripture indicates clearly that he is jesus certainly taught that the devil was a real individual uh, a fallen archangel it seems most likely so verse 10 says the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and so i guess i would say uh, that apart from what happens with human beings those three figures will be tormented day and night forever and ever so the argument that sometimes is used, uh, how can God give out infinite punishment for finite sin, could also apply to these three individuals, couldn't it? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, I mean, they're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then moving on in the text, it talks about the great uh, white throne judgment. And it moves, it seems to me, to human beings whose names are not found in the book of life. And then they are, uh, verse 14, uh, thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Uh, anyone's name is not found written in the book of life. He'll be thrown into the lake of fire. And it gets back, I think, to how we define death. I define uh, physical death, uh, hopefully uh, 
consistent with scripture. That is the separation of my soul or spirit from my body. Eternal death is the separation of me from God forever. Hmm. And so I don't see second death here as annihilationism or cessation of existence. And if I'm right, then within about 10 verses, we have described the eternal torment of the devil and the beast and the false prophet, uh, along with the fate of all whose, all human beings whose name, names are not found in the book of life. Right. So it would seem at least unlikely, uh, at best that the fate of the devil and the beast and the false prophet is going to be, uh, f- profoundly different from the fate of everybody else thrown into it. Is that kind of along the lines of what you're saying? Yeah. And I think we need to be careful there because traditionally Christians have talked about the devil being the king of hell and all this kind of stuff. No, he <laughs> will be one of his prisoners. And, uh, and, and we need to be, we, uh, part of the challenge, as you know, Chris, is sorting out a lot of Christian imagination yes. from what the Bible actually teaches. And, and I think if we stick to what the Bible teaches, it's horrific enough. I mean, when we, when we get words like torture and torment and forever and ever and, and fire and all this, uh, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time imagining and spinning off and speculating what that's going to be like. Well, sure, and 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 mention you know mentioning the uh, going back to the kind of uh, cartoony pictures we have of hell that you that you mentioned. Uh, it's funny I, I often hear atheists say the phrase um, "better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven" or something like that. And yeah, it, yeah. I, I find that funny because nowhere does the Bible describe anybody, including Satan himself, ruling in hell. <laughs> it's quite yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the Luke sixteen, by the way, if I can come back to that for just a sure. second. Uh, Abraham says to Dives, between us and you, a great chasm has been set, uh, has been fixed. And the you there is plural. Uh, I'm in South Carolina. Down here we say y'all. Mm. So <laughs> he's saying between us and y'all, a great chasm has been fixed. And yet the the impression is that the rich man doesn't know of anybody else that's there. He's unaware of that. And so I occasionally have said to unsaved people, listen, if you go to hell, it won't be a big party with all your buddies. Mm. It'll be absolute solitary confinement from every other human being, but worst of all, from God himself. Yeah. Okay. Well, in the last chapter of your book, which you call Must We Decide About the Other Side, you argue for what you call, quote, the adequacy of the traditional view in light of the errors of the alternatives you critique in earlier chapters. And you do this by looking at four areas in which, as you write, quote, the traditional position possesses biblical as well as rational support, unquote. Now, the first of these areas you call the awful absence of God. How does the traditional view of hell fare better in this area than the alternatives? Well, I would say if the worst possible fate for a human being is the absence of God, then annihilationism brings that fate to a conclusion by the person disappearing from existence. Hmm. So only an eternal conscious separation from God fits here. So I, I would argue that the traditional view presents that um, that possibility, that an eternal conscious separation from God is what's going to be the fate of, of the wicked. Okay. What about the area that you call the catastrophe of misguided choice? Why, why is the traditional view adequate in this area, and why are the alternatives inadequate? Uh, well, there, um, as I'm thinking about this whole issue of how we decide about the uh, about the other side, you know, Harry Blameyers put it this way, choosing between heaven and hell is the weightiest human concern, earth. It's with us every day of our lives. And so, I mean, I would respond that absolutely this is the most important decision that anyone 
uh, can make, whether to respond positively uh, to the gospel or not. And my position, Chris, is that alternative views to eternal conscious punishment lessen the severity of that decision. And I, I'm, I'm sure not all your listeners would agree with this, but I actually think that for many people who don't believe the gospel, annihilationism is good news. Hmm. Uh, or certainly it's better news than eternal conscious punishment. Um, years ago, I wrote a short paper called The Allure of Annihilationism. Um, the late Dr. Pinnock actually set in on that paper and challenged my title. But, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I, I stood by my title. I, I, you know, wicked people who don't want to believe the gospel, it seems to me, would much rather be put out of existence than, uh, than exist forever separated from God. So that's kind of what I meant there. That's what I was looking for. Okay. And what about the, the next area, the uh, truthful theodicy? How is it that the traditional view of hell provides a truthful theodicy where the alternatives don't? Uh, it seems to me that um, to suggest annihilationism, for example, uh, that there is an end of the punishment of the wicked, not only runs counter to the language that we have in Scripture, but I think it leads eventually to, to a kind of uh, diminution of the, the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Um, so I think some of the, I think these doctrines kind of hang together, as it were. Mm. Um, it's been my experience in reading some kind of postmodern evangelical writers, some from the emergent church movement. Uh, the first doctrine they attack is the doctrine of hell, and they want to get rid of the doctrine of hell as traditionally understood. And uh, not long after getting rid of that doctrine in their minds, uh, they attack the idea of the vicarious penal atoning work of Christ. Mm. Um, and then they take on the issue of how really sinful is man and, and, you know, a number of other issues like that. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily making the argument, the kind of slippery slope argument, but I think there is something to consider there. And when it comes to the issue of theodicy, I believe, as C.S. Lewis argued, that God's last act of mercy is hell. It is separating the wicked from the righteous. And forevermore, they will be under God's judgment as an illustration of his holiness. Um, and as much as I would like to vote for annihilationism, I don't <laughs> see that as a better theodicy. I really don't. Okay. And then lastly, how does a traditional view fit better than its alternatives into what you call eternal contrasts? Well, I was recently reading an article um, in which uh, the late John Stott, who um, announced himself as an annihilationist um, uh, in a in a a book a few years ago, um, was basically saying, uh, he was referring to the Matthew 25, um, the sheep get eternal life and the, the goats get eternal punishment, that uh, he couldn't agree that it's eternal punishing, that it will go on forever and it must, there must come an end. And he made the point that uh, one would expect there to be the greatest of contrasts between the fate of the righteous and the fate of the wicked. I, I think he's actually proving the traditionalist point there. Uh, if the fate of the righteous is eternal blessedness in the presence of the Lord, then the logical um, and equivalent uh, opposite to that would would be eternal um, condemnation separated from God, mm. not cessation of being. And I just I think in in that sense uh, the Bible really does portray a great contrast between the two destinies. I see. Okay.
Well, let's start to dive in then into Annihilationism's arguments. And uh, as I mentioned to, in my original email to you, I recently interviewed Edward Fudge on the topic, uh, having not myself been very familiar with this view before that point. Uh, in, in the third edition of his book, The Fire That Consumes, um, he, in which he recently he recently released that, that edition, he interacts with 12 books published since the book was originally published some 30 years ago, including yours. Now, I, I know that you haven't had a chance to look at some of this interaction, but having read the book it, when it was originally published, what, were, what was your overall impression of his book um i have the highest respect for the the work that he's put into this topic and uh, um, i i think he's raised a number of questions to which uh, evangelical uh, traditionalists have responded uh, for example m- uh, my friend robert peterson in his uh, hermeneutics of annihilationism i think has responded to a number of points that fudge raises uh, raised and uh, not only that edition but i think the third edition as well hmm. um what he sees as logical and exegetical fallacies of, of Fudge's approach. Um, I think it's a conversation that needs to continue to happen, um, but I think we need to really listen carefully to each other and, and uh, uh, do our very best when we focus upon a, a biblical text to find the meaning. I, I'm not of the persuasion, Chris, that and, and I know this is one of your later questions, but I'm not of the persuasion that annihilationism is an equally viable position hmm. among evangelicals. Um, and as as much as I uh, respected the work of John Stott, I, I wouldn't have him teach a course in eschatology for me. Hmm. Uh, I would I would love to have him teach on all kinds of other matters, but I think he was wrong on that. And I, I think there are some dangerous effects of uh, holding that to that particular view. So, um, uh, you know, I appreciate, I, I appreciate the lack of vitriol on Fudge's part. And I, I recognize that some traditionalists have, you know, responded to annihilationist argument with uh, pretty strong language. Uh, but I guess, you know, we feel these things uh, pretty keenly. Yeah. Uh, G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He says, what do you mean don't argue over a word? What good are words if you can't argue over them? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so I, I think there are times to argue about some of these things. I mean, we need to treat each other with respect and not engage in, you know, ad hominems. But, um, uh, you know, and, and I'm thankful for a couple of kind things that, that uh, Fudge said about my stuff. But. Uh, I'm not persuaded by his arguments, and I think there are some some strong logical and exegetical mistakes that are there. Fair enough. Yeah, and and I appreciate what what you had to say about the conversation and the kind of respect we need to have. And um, you know, you you didn't toot your own horn, but you did mention the the kind words that Fudge has said, and I'll I'll read them. Um, you know, he wrote a view that even those who reject Dixon's traditional understanding can appreciate his tone, which is more reasonable and far less vitriolic than recent defenses of everlasting conscious torment. Um, now, you know, you mentioned that there've been some traditionalists who've used strong words. I, I would go farther than that. I've personally experienced just as somebody who's you know. Sort of shifted to the fence, uh, some more vitriol than that. But, mm. but, but, like you said, I, I suspect that that's coming from both sides to a certain extent. And like you, I would just like to see the conversation uh, take place more respectfully. You know what I mean? I, I do. I understand that. I, and I guess I would only make the point that fighting for what we believe is orthodoxy is always a tricky matter. Sure. Uh, I believe we're to be passionate about the good news. Of course, then the question would be, why shouldn't we be passionate about the bad news of the good news? Right. And, and part of the reason, part of the, part of the response of traditionalists is they have been facing the criticisms of cults, Job's Witnesses, Seventh day Adventists, others, 
on this issue of annihilationism for years and, you know, accused of believing that God is a cosmic torturer and all this. And then we get a few evangelicals like Pinnock and Stott and Michael Green that accuse us of the same stuff. I mean, it's to me, it's reasonable that we would respond with strong language, especially if the traditional view is right and annihilationism is, is clearly wrong in Scripture. Uh, that's providing, in a sense, hope for a lot of people that the Bible doesn't provide. Mm. And I, I think we all should be extremely careful um, trying to re-engineer the gospel itself, both in its good and, and negative side. So, uh, you know, the traditionalists and the annihilationists both can't be right. I mean, the position sure. could be that the Bible's unclear. I don't think the Bible's unclear. So if the Bible is clear... Then one one of one of our two sides has to be wrong, and to respond to that passionately, I think is uh, is to be expected. Sure, yeah, I agree. Uh, just just to be clear, I'm sure that many annihilationists would say that it's equally clear <laughs> that they would all, they would also say oh, that the Bible is sure. ambiguous. But yep. uh, yeah, and we'll be discussing more of that as we continue. Now, uh, although some annihil although annihilationists claim that their view is taught in Scripture, many of them appear to make what seems to me to be a very subjective emotional argument. You just alluded to it a moment ago. In fact, uh, you quote Clark Pinnock as saying, "I was led to question the traditional belief in everlasting conscious torment because of moral revulsion, not first." of all, on scriptural grounds. Now, many annihilationists like Pinnock claim it would be immoral for God to torment the wicked eternally. Like you, I don't agree, but tell us why you don't agree and why traditionalists are right to object to the claim of superior sensitivity made by some annihilationists. Well, the term torment does trouble me, and I know that there are terms that are defined that way uh, that are used in scripture, but the, uh, most people, when they hear the word torment, it smacks of undeserved, unnecessary unearned punishment at the hands of a vindictive tormentor. Mm. Um, motives are always a tricky thing to prove, especially somebody else's. So when Pinnock makes, makes the statement that he was led to question the traditional belief out of primarily out of moral revulsion, not first on scriptural grounds, I, my response to that was, I think that's quite telling in terms of the priority or lack of priority of the scriptures for him on that point. Mm. And Pinnock was very kind to me with respect to my book, because I want to make sure that I represented his position uh, faithfully. And uh, he was able to say that I had captured his view um, accurately as, you know, I talked about annihilationism. So I, I don't think we, it doesn't advance the argument to question each other's motives. Hmm. I hardly know my own motives. I'm probably not going to know the other person's motives. Sure. But, to, but you know, for traditionalists to accuse annihilationists of mere sen sentimentality or annihilationists to accuse traditionalists of, you know, vindictiveness, it doesn't really advance the discussion. I see. But, but, but of course, there's another element to this question, which isn't just the, the, the motivations behind um, uh, annihilationists versus traditionalists. It's all, it also has to do with the, the moral quality of God. Do, do you see any, uh, any um, difficulty reconciling the traditional view of hell with uh, God's holiness and morality? Uh, no, I don't. And, and, and I, I think some, some do. And the question is, is not our own sense of morality affected by the fall. Right. I mean, Isaiah says that it seems to indicate that the righteous will look upon the corpses of the wicked and they will say, holy and righteous are your judgments. Mm. And so I guess part of my response uh, to that would be uh, my moral judgment is flawed. If I start out, as some recent emergent writers have done, to ask, 
what would a perfectly good, holy, uh, loving um, creator look like? And they start with a framework, and then they take that framework and begin imposing it on the scriptures. So if the scripture seems to imply that God will punish someone eternally, they conclude, well, that's not possible. Mm. We've already established he's an eternally loving God. And, of course, the other thing they do, like universalists, is they grab one attribute, like God's love, and define everything in terms of God's love. And sure. it's interesting. The only attribute of God that's repeated three times in scripture is holy, mm. holy, holy. So I, I sense that, I sense that, um, proclivity to start with an image of who we think God is, and then even some of the clearest texts about God's eternal punishment to, uh, basically edit them away. Uh, Thomas Talbot does that in his book, the inescapable love of God. As a contemporary universalist, he takes that Second Thessalonians 1, 8, 9 text that talked about the wicked being cast out of God's presence, eternal destruction, punishment, all the rest, and he actually says that text could be read redemptively. All we have to do is apply a little theological imagination. Sure. Yeah. And my response is that's not imagination, that's unbelief. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you, and, and and I agree with what you've said about the uh, the, the moral issue. Um, it, it's sort of like uh, it's sort of like a two dimensional creature assuming what it would be like to be a three dimensional creature. And that's yeah, a yeah. bad analogy, but but you know the point is why in the world would we as not only as fallen creatures, although that's very relevant, but also as finite creatures, why in the world would we assume that we're going to correctly understand what uh, an infinitely holy God would do? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, now, when I announced that I'd be asking you for your response to annihilationism, a couple of listeners emailed me with questions they wanted me to ask you, uh, and you gave me permission to ask these of you. So first, there was a listener named Dave who asked me to pose this question to you. He wrote saying, if the wages of sin is eternal conscious torment, why isn't Christ still paying for our sins? How would you answer Dave's question? Well, that's an excellent question, and I would say I believe the eternal Son of God paid for the eternal debt of my sins by a sacrifice on the cross. He died once for all, the just for the unjust. Although his time on the cross was temporary, his sacrifice took care of my eternal debt against an eternal holy God. Of course, the wages of sin is death, but death has to be defined biblically. So when, when he uh, poses this question, um, if the wages of sin is eternal conscious torment, uh, I, I would say we need to get back to a biblical definition of death, because Christ in his divine nature is an eternal person. Hmm. Apparently he could endure suffering in that eternal person, though the, the suffering was technically according to his human nature. He could, he could experience the, the equivalent of eternal suffering on the part of mere mortals. Um, I think we must keep in mind the infinite qualitative distinction between the created and the creator. So m my short answer to that, although I've gone <laughs> already, it is that the very nature of the Son of God meant that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to pay the eternal debt of my sins. If he had not been fully human and fully divine, then that debt, he, he would not have paid that debt. Sure. So when a, when a, when a, when a person that only has a human nature, uh, a finite person suffers a finite human death, that would not be sufficient to pay for, uh, or the eternal, uh, consequences of sin. But if for the eternal, infinite person of the son to die a human death, um, would qualify him to suffer, to, to, uh, as, as that sort of sacrifice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Hebrews, of course, makes that clear, doesn't it? That he has, 
by the sacrifice himself ended the sacrificial system. He Mm. satisfied the righteousness of God. So the fact is his atoning work was sufficient. It pleased the Father. The Father showed it by raising the Son from the dead. Um, And so I think all of those things kind of fit together there. Okay. Now, the other question that I received was asked in slightly different forms by two of my listeners, uh, one of them by Dr. Glenn Peoples. Um, the other one was a listener named Ronnie, who will be debating annihilationism with Turretin fan on my show, um, I think it's next week. But I'm going to ask it in the form emailed me by Dr. Peoples, and, and here's what he asked. Given that the biblical writers do use all the language of destruction, perishing, dying, being consumed, and so on, um, but this doesn't, in your view, suggest annihilation, what kind of language would the biblical writers have needed to use before we should take their comments to refer to actual destruction and death in the way that annihilationists suggest? Okay, first of all, Chris, I think that's an excellent question, but it's also worded in such a way as to leave out some of the other things we've already talked about. Hmm. I mean, when we see texts about um, being tormented day and night forever and ever, or when we see Matthew twenty five forty six that the fate of the goats is eternal punishment. I mean, those need to be t- taken into consideration uh, as well. Sure. But my short response to this is this. Why could not the biblical authors have said that the wicked will never be seen or heard from again, and that the very memory of them will absolutely be blotted out? Obviously, the memory of them remains because the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. So, in other words, I, I would agree that some of the terms that are used, one could draw the conclusion, this sounds like this person will cease to exist. Part of the difficulty, I would suggest, is that many of those expressions are used in the Old Testament, which seems to put its primary focus upon the, this earthly life. Uh, developing a doctrine of the afterlife from the Old Testament, I, I think, is uh, a challenge. I believe there are texts that talk about the afterlife. But when the wicked are, are spoken of as being no more, I think it means they have no more presence on earth. Mm. So part of, my, part of my point is I think it's a well-worded question. Uh, on the other hand, we do get, other ex- we, we get examples of where destroy does not mean cease to exist. Um, the parable of the lost coin and lost sheep and lost son are you know, described as being destroyed and uh, who is it, David, that lost, a, I forget, he lost one of the animals and, you know, it was described as being lost, but it, it, it's the same Hebrew term for destruction. Hmm. Um, there are a number of places like that. And, and you know, we, we talk about the wicked will be no more, but Genesis talk about, talks about Enoch walked with God and he was not. Uh, I mean, or the, the wicked will be cut off, but we also read of the Messiah being cut off. So the point is... Uh, Words have uh, a range of meaning. We need to look at their context very carefully and and see if there are other meanings that make more sense in that text, as well as taking what I would see as the positive indications of the ongoing existence of the wicked after death. I understand. So, so maybe maybe there's three parts to your answer. Number one, um, most of this language of of destruction, perishing, dying, being no more, and so forth comes out of the Old Testament, which you would say uh, is is with respect to this life. Uh, your second point would be that much of this language can be uh, and is often used to refer to something other than a cessation of being. Uh, and then and then thirdly, in light of texts which you think positively do teach eternal conscious torment, um, we really have to understand this language uh, in some other way than what annihilationists might suggest. Does that sound about right? Yep, that's a fair summary. Yep. Okay. 
Okay, well, I'm going to wait until tomorrow to publish the second half of the interview so that you have some time to think about what Larry Dixon has argued. Tomorrow, join me as I uh, challenge him from the annihilationist perspective. Uh, until then, 